Well, good to see everybody this morning. Thanks for your patience with a couple of technical difficulties this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28 this morning. Matthew chapter 28 is where we'll be in God's Word. And we are in a series right now walking through... Uh, the Gospel of Matthew, not looking at every verse on this run through the Gospel of Matthew, but really wanting to capture some of the, the realities about the kingdom of God. And I've tried to consolidate some of those truths. Last week we looked at this, this, this amazing truth that really should orient everything else, and that's that the king is coming. Um, and that's a central idea that we see then played out as far as our hope is concerned in the New Testament of what we're ultimately looking forward to. Um, I spoke with a, a brother um, yesterday, um, one of our own brothers here, Frank Catalanata, his, his younger brother passed away over the weekend. Um, and, and as we talked and prayed on the phone, just talking about the hope we have and looking forward to that day, the day of Christ, and how that actually is then a living hope in this moment of grieving the loss of a loved one, but how it anchors us and how in that very moment it was orienting Frank and his mourning the loss of a brother, but also affixing his hope on what is ahead in that reality. So I want you to see how these truths, they really do come to bear on our life. And so today, we reach the end of this study of walking through the Gospel of Matthew and looking at the kingdom of God. And the truth today that I just want us to just really fixate on and then to look at how it is communicated and the facets of this truth is this, the king has absolute authority. The king has absolute authority. And on one level, this truth seems so basic that it's like, really? This is it? This is, this is the thing? Okay, got it. Yet our lives say we have not gotten it. Our, our lives speak that we are struggling on a daily basis, moment to moment, with this reality that the king has all authority. Absolute authority over all things. But I don't want you to take my word from it. I want you to see it in the Word of God. So I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, hearing from the Lord this morning, beginning in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. We're going to read the last four verses together. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word this morning. And thank you that of all the things that could have been spoken by the resurrected Jesus in this moment, the heart of God is on display in these words. And it is a reality that is to give us hope. It is a reality that is to give us confidence. It is a reality that is to give our lives the greatest meaning. And so, Lord, today, would you speak fresh from your word, orienting every part of our lives around this incredible truth about the kingdom of God, that the king has absolute authority. And it's in his holy name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you're in a moment of frustration or tension or something like that, and then all of a sudden somebody says, who's in charge? Anybody? Who's in charge? That, that's who I want to see right now. Who's in charge? 
often it's a moment of tension. It's something that's gone wrong, and somebody's wanting to figure out who they can talk to to fix it, to get it, to get it done right. And right now, I think that there's a lot of folks within the church and maybe on the outside of the church that would say, who's in charge? Who's in charge? Because things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Like I said, that's people inside the church and people outside the church looking and saying, who's in charge? And the reality that we look at then in our world today is that when something goes wrong in an organization, you look in the secular community and maybe a teacher since we're talking about education, does the wrong thing, sometimes it's the principal that gets fired. You ever notice that? That sometimes it's, it's different organizations like maybe a company where an employee does something and then the CEO resigns. You, you see that because there is something to this idea of who's in charge? Who's in charge? What have they been communicating? How have they been leading the, the, the whole thing? How, how have they been leading their school? How have they been leading their business? How have they been leading the church? There is something to this question, but central to our understanding of the church that then permeates our understanding of all things, government, education, business, is this, the king has absolute authority. And it's as we live in opposition to that reality that our lives become kind of a mess Our businesses become a mess. Our churches become a mess. Our schools become a mess. Our government becomes a mess when we do not orient to this central reality that the king has absolute authority. But I want us to watch the progression of a few things that happen here in this passage that that are a response, if you will, or a manifestation of this reality that the king has absolute authority. And the first reality, if you're taking notes today, is this, that because the king has absolute authority, he is worthy of the worship of all nations. Notice that Jesus does not immediately come out, and as soon as he sees the disciples, just say, you better bow down. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, you better worship me. Instead, the moment they see the resurrected Jesus... It says, and they worshiped. The disciples, these 11 that have gathered to meet him at Galilee, as soon as they see him, they worshiped. Now, there were some that doubted. That's acknowledged in the text. In fact, we see that really developed later in other places where we get these little phrases like doubting Thomas because Thomas wanted to see the nails in his hands, the the hole in his side. And Jesus permits that and says, put your hands, you know, touch the nail holes, touch my side. And so Jesus knows how to deal with those who doubt. But I want us to see how immediately the response of the disciples was to worship him. And we might stop there and say, okay, so the orientation then for we who are disciples is to worship him. But that's not really a a thing that should leave the church. In other words, worship of Jesus is in here, not out there. But notice what Jesus does. He receives the worship. He doesn't correct them. You see, when we turn over to the book of Acts, we see Paul at one point on a missionary journey along with Barnabas being worshipped at some point. But they say, stop, stop, don't worship us. We're just men like you. But Jesus does not manifest that same corrective of saying, whoa, 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 I'm just a man like you. No, he receives the worship. He's acknowledging by not turning it away that he is worthy of the worship. But then notice what he says to the disciples about what they're to do. They're to go, therefore, and make disciples 
of all nations. If you begin to kind of marry this together, Jesus seems to expect and receive rightfully the worship of his 11 disciples. And then he says, go and make disciples of all nations, which is another way of saying, make worshipers. That there are to be worshipers of me in every nation, tribe, and tongue. In other words, he's saying, I want you to leave this mountain and go and tell all nations this good news of the gospel in order to make disciples of all nations. You say, okay. But there are people right now you need to understand that would say that that's pretty selfish of us. There's a lot of anthropologists who, who have studied indigenous people groups in different countries. One example would be in, in, the, in the jungles of Peru, that it is a selfish act to go into those places and bring this gospel of Jesus Christ when they already have a worship. They, they already have a way of life. To, to do that is to inject your way of thinking, your beliefs, all of those things into this indigenous people group and to mess up their culture, to mess up what they have. I want to take an experience of how the gospel was injected into a people group and kind of use that as an illustration this morning for simplicity. Several years ago, I had the chance to travel to the country of Lesotho. And some of you may have heard me recount this story, but it had such an impact on me that it's worth telling again. As we were there, one of the main platforms that the missionaries had in the country of Lesotho was medical missions. And so Teresa, the husband of Jim, was known by all as, as Mother Teresa. She was the nurse of the village, really bringing primary medical aid to everyone within reach. And so she would get calls at all times about a person in need. And so one evening while we were there, a call came in that there was a man who was very ill and needed to be seen by her immediately. Because of giving through the cooperative program and through Baptist Global Response that at that time, there were these buckets full of medical supplies and they help with palliative care that we would take with us to these places because many times people were being, were being uh, simply treated for, for life-ending diseases like HIV and AIDS, which was very prevalent in the country of Lesotho. So we grabbed one of the, the hospice buckets, one of these care buckets, and we went to this village way up the mountain, went into this hut, and there was a man laying on the bed. And his abdomen was extremely swollen. He couldn't get up. Teresa did an intake of, of his condition and then began to communicate, sir, you're dying. Your liver has ceased to function and your body is beginning to retain fluids and, and you're very ill and, and you will die very soon. But there's a man that's come here from another part of the world to tell you something very important. And then she looked at me and she said, Chad, share the gospel with this man. Now, I went to Lesotho ready to share the gospel with people, but in this moment, I was just wanting to be an observer. I was just wanting to watch Teresa, the, the missionary wife, do her thing and to lead this man to Christ and be able to rejoice in that. But in that moment, she thrust me not into an awkward moment, but into the Great Commission. You see, Teresa... And Jim understood that I, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, am called to go and make disciples of all nations. And so in her love for me, and in her love for this lost man who was dying, 
she knew that the greatest gift that she could give under the authority of Jesus Christ, her Savior, was to pull me in in that moment to the Great Commission. And I want you to understand something. That as we begin to restart some of our Care Effect ministries, as I've had the opportunity to introduce you to several missionaries with the International Mission Board, and as we will begin to give greater and greater emphasis to our cooperative work with missions, both in church planting, in North America, in making disciples of all nations through the International Mission Board, I, like Teresa, am wanting to grab you by the hand and to bring you under the authority of Jesus Christ into the Great Commission. And I want to acknowledge very quickly, we're not all called to go on the same trips. We're not all called to work with the same church plants. We're not all called to be engaged in the same care effective ministry, but we are all called equally as disciples of Jesus Christ to make disciples of all nations because Jesus is worthy of the worship of all people. The story goes forward. This man, I mean, I, I, it was the worst gospel presentation I think I've ever given in my life. I'm having to do it through a translator. I'm stumbling through it. I'm, I'm just trying to be sure that I'm remembering the way that they had taught us to share the gospel using this presentation called The Two Kingdoms. And so I'm just stumbling through it. I'm like, this is terrible. I'm a pastor, and I am horrible in this moment. But God was wonderful in that moment. And God opened that man's heart to believe on his deathbed. And I just encouraged him that if, if you believe these things and you desire for Jesus Christ to save you, then I encourage you, just cry out to him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins and to give you a new heart. And there on his bed, he just reached out his hands and began to just talk, to talk in his language. And I didn't understand what he was saying, but the translator, our, our interpreter said, he's calling out to God. He's asking God to forgive him. He's asking God to give him a new heart. I encouraged the man. We left the bucket and we left. And that was it. That was all that we had time to do. In just two days, we would be leaving to return to the United States. We had a very full agenda of medical clinics and other things that we were doing throughout the country that was taking us all over. And so I didn't get to hear the rest of that story. I didn't get to hear the rest of that story until several weeks later. But that brings me to this second reality, that Jesus uses his authority for the good of all nations. You see, Jesus uses his authority for the good of all nations. If we read the command to make disciples of all nations as anything but his good gift for all people, then we are reading it wrongly. This is not Jesus saying, go and force people to do something. This is not Jesus saying, overthrow national governments, oppose things, take political positions, do all these. Jesus isn't getting lost in politics in this moment. Jesus is not just taking up an agenda of some sort to deal with certain issues and to kind of cherry pick the things that he was upset about and then to say, take strong stands against those things. No, he tells them in his authority. I mean, think about this. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what would you do? I mean, this is kind of the genie in a bottle question. You know, if you had a wish, what would you ask for? And there's some people that say, oh, I'd ask for all the money in the world, you know, or I'd ask for this, or, or I'd ask for all the authority. But what was it in the movie Aladdin that, that, the, that, that finally Jafar realizes, oh, that's what I should ask for, 
It's to become a genie himself. To, to, be, to be a God, if you will. And in that moment, he became a prisoner. And right now, there are so many people that think that what they're trying to get free from is this control that, that God exerts over us and that he's limiting us and he's trying to control us and all of these things. But the more we buy into that, the more enslaved we become to the desires of others, of what others wish for us to do. But in this moment of all authority, of Jesus saying all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he uses all of that authority to then call us to do what produces the greatest good in the world. Good for all people. Not just good for people in America. Not just good for people who speak English. Not just good for people that have a good education. Not just good for people that have an affluent lifestyle. Not just good for a certain strata of people, but good for all people. Pick up in the story of this man in Lesotho who's crying out from his deathbed. Sure enough, they took him to the hospital. He was in liver failure because he had spent his life drinking. And they make a homemade liquor in Lesotho that is especially potent and toxic to the body. And so he had been a partier. He had been part of a group of tribal leaders that really oppressed people, that treated women very horribly, and treated his own family very horribly. But remember, this man had cried out to Jesus to save him. This man had asked Jesus for a new heart. And so the story continues. This man, while in the hospital, summoned his family together, all of his children, his wife, and he looked at his wife and he said, I have been so mean to you. I've mistreated you. And you are a good woman. And as the woman was telling Teresa what happened, she said, we have been married for over 40 years. He had never told me that I was a good woman. Tears running down her face. Then the man took his children and he began to go around one by one to them and apologize for the things that he had done as a dad. And you would say, some might say, well, I mean, this is just a classic, you know, deathbed kind of situation where this guy is just going to, let me ask you, if you've ever been in that situation where you've been dealing with someone who has that old, cold heart, is that what they're doing? Trying to make amends and fix it all? Not often. Not often. They're still focused on self. There's still a selfish ambition, even in the apologies. There's a manipulation to it. It's, it's, it seems to be something that's co you know, just coercion, but without any string attached, this man was humbling himself and apologizing to his family. And his children wept, and they couldn't, they couldn't really believe what was happening, that their dad was apologizing for these ways. And then he asked Jim, the missionary, he said, I want for you to share this message with our village. Because in Lesotho, when someone dies, the entire village mourns that loss. The entire village attends that funeral. And he said, I want you to tell my entire village, my entire tribe, this good news about Jesus Christ. And so he died. And the funeral was gathered. And over 200 people were gathered together where Jim was then able to stand before them and to share this good news of the gospel. And many in that village became Christians at this man's funeral. Many people in that village received a new heart. Many families were set free from the tyranny of, of someone who was an abusive drunk that day. And you tell me 
What, what good would it have been for that man to have remained in his tribal religion, where he was worshiping ancestors from years before, drinking himself to death, abusing his wife, cheating on his wife, beating his children, and then to see this man because of the work that Jesus Christ did. He didn't attend a six-week right now media Bible study that told him about the importance of humbling yourself and, and confessing your sin and apologizing to your family. He didn't do that. He didn't even have much time to to even receive any discipleship. But the work of the Spirit of God in this man's life produced good that is still having a ripple effect in the country of Lesotho, in that valley where he lived. And I want you to see how Jesus uses all of his authority that's been given to him, all authority in heaven on earth, in order to bring about the greatest good for us. And the greatest good for this world, for this entire world, for all nations. And so we are not in an arrogant posture going into the world to make disciples of all nations. We are not forcing some religion that's going to mess up a society or change an indigenous people toward the bad. No, instead, we are bringing good news that liberates the soul, that changes the heart, that makes men and women Boys and girls thrive according to God's design for them. That's the good news. That's the power of the gospel. The king has absolute authority, and he uses his authority for the good of all nations. And so I invite you, church family, that as opportunities come for you to make disciples here in New Orleans through our Care Effect Ministries, that now armed with a way to simply and clearly share the gospel with the three circles, that you will go and make disciples of all nations. I hope that when opportunities come for you to be engaged in ministries that are strategic, like global maritime ministries, that is ministering to thousands and thousands of, 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 of sailors that are coming to our shorelines from all nations, that when the doors open for those opportunities for you to make disciples of all nations, that you'll take it and go and make disciples of all nations. That when opportunities come for you to go on short-term mission trips or to pray for mission teams that are going or to be engaged in praying for an unreached people group, that you will take the opportunity and go and make it disciples of all nations. We're going to look at in just a couple of weeks more clearly at our mission and talk more about baptizing and teaching and what all is entailed there. But for today, I want you to understand and just grasp that this king who has absolute authority is using it not to abuse us, not to suppress us, not to to rule over the nations in some harsh way, but in order to bring the greatest good the world has ever known, the forgiveness of sins, and that changes everything. But I also want you to see that this one who has absolute authority over all nations, over all peoples, he then does what Writers like Jim Collins and Good to Great have identified to be the distinguishing mark of truly great leaders. He humbles himself in his greatness yet again. You see, Paul, when describing what Jesus had done, in the humility that he was trying to promote in the church, he says, who who consider who, who grasping equality with God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and became obedient as a servant, even obedient to death on a cross. 
And I want you to understand that that humility of God sending his son and Jesus coming down and living among us is then manifest again. His character hasn't changed. You see, sometimes when, when a person steps into a leadership position, sometimes it's like, man, they, they changed. They, they used to be a really great guy a really great girl, but, but all of a sudden they got put in a leadership position. Man, I don't know if it went to their head. I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden they became a tyrant. They, they, they began just telling people what to do and, and lording it over people, and it's just like, man, what happened? Their character changed. Nothing about Jesus changed. And that distinguishing mark that Jim Collins notes in a level five top-tier leader that sets him apart is humility, and the humility of Jesus Christ is seen, as, seen in this. I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, this isn't one who said, I did my part. I'm now going to sit on my throne and that's it. You guys better do your part. Jesus in humility says, and I am with you always. This should elicit in us a confidence in this life that we are never alone. You see, during this last year of COVID-19 and there being lots of quarantines and isolation, we who are in Christ, we're not alone. But more than that, our brothers and sisters and the missionaries that we have commissioned and sent, when they are laboring in the most difficult places, places like the Robichaux family who came and were with us and came around to your classes with their four children, the Robichaux family who's in a country in North Africa that we can't even name for their protection, they're in a place where there's literally no known believers. There's no one no one among this people group that know Jesus. And so they might say, we are alone. But Jesus speaks to them and says, I am with you. I am with you always. That is a word of encouragement. That is a word of humility. When you hold it in contrast with the beginning, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then in humility, he says, but I am with you always. A hit series several years ago was Undercover Boss, where all of a sudden, somebody that was at the top of the organization, the CEO of the business, would all of a sudden be found down on the loading dock, loading the trucks with the employees and just kind of, you know, talking at the water cooler about, well, you know, so what do you think about the guy at the top and all of these sort of things? And then that just how blown away they were that, wow, like you're down here on the loading dock with us and, and doing the work and wanting to know what we think. That, that's amazing. You see, in our culture, we're still impressed when someone who's at the top of an organization humbles himself and comes down. That's what Jim Collins notes in his book, Good to Great, is that that's what distinguishes a top leader is one who never rises above cleaning the toilets, picking up the piece of trash that he sees. No matter how high he climbs, how high she climbs, they're never above the tasks that are needed to be done in the moment. That doesn't mean that they busy themselves in those ways, but they're never above it. And Jesus, who now says, all, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, he then humbly says to the most lowly disciple in the most obscure place in the mountains of Lesotho, to a man who has abused his family, who has beaten his wife, who has who done horrible things to his children, all of these things, he speaks to that man in a moment. This one who many of us would say doesn't matter. 
This man who was only a believer for two weeks before he died, he looks at him and he joins him in his hospital room and he says, I am with you always. And in that moment, Jesus Christ was giving that man, that brother in Christ, what was needed in order to humble himself just as Christ did and to bring in his family and apologize. His wife, who when we came to the home said, I'm already a believer. She was part of a Zionist group there in Lesotho that was kind of a cult. But they, they had the name of Jesus. They, they, they believed in Jesus Christ, but also a whole bunch of other stuff. She came back to the missionaries after the funeral, after all of these things. And she said, I've become convinced after seeing what Jesus did for my husband and what Jesus has done for many in my village that I do not know Christ. And I want to have Jesus. I want to trust Jesus like my husband did. That's how Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, uses his authority. He blesses the lowly. He shows mercy to those who cry out to him. And he humbles himself and he comes all the way down to be with you and to be with me, to be with us. Surely I am with you, plural, the church, my disciples, those who follow me. I am with you always, he says. But I'm curious, what parts of our lives right now, both corporately but then also individually as we scatter and go and live, need again to be brought under the lordship of Jesus. For some in this room right now, it may be that you've never given your life. You may even be like the wife in that story of a, of a man who came to Christ, who you've gone through the motions, you've been what you thought was a Christian, but hearing described the works of Jesus, you maybe are questioning, do I really know him? Don't let those doubts remain. Don't let your mind run back to some previous moment to be your assurance. The Spirit of God should be crying out in your heart, Abba, Father, that should be assurance for you. That the Spirit is at work and producing fruit in your life, that should be assurance to you. Not just looking back to some previous moment and hoping that you meant it enough. The Spirit of God should be your assurance in this life. He's the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance in the day of Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. So if there are these lingering doubts, there is this confusion in your soul about whether you truly belong to him, then like that sister in Christ in Lesotho who had lost her husband, come and ask and say, I want to know this Jesus. But for the rest of us who would say, I know Christ, when was the last time that you did a conscious surrender of your children? And said, Jesus, you have absolute authority over my children. When was the last time you grabbed your spouse by the hand and freshly surrendered your marriage and said, Jesus, you have absolute authority over our marriage? When was the last time you just pulled out your wallet in simplicity and surrendered again as a disciple of Jesus Christ and said, Jesus, you have absolute authority over our finances? Jesus, you have absolute authority over our possessions. Jesus, you have absolute authority over our vacation. Jesus, you have absolute authority over my time, over my thoughts, over my entertainment, what I watch, what I read, where I go, what I do. 
You see, that brings us back where we started, that when we see Jesus and we see him rightly with all authority, we worship. Worship is seen in surrender because the disciples had a, had a decision to make. Would they obey? Would they obey Jesus and his call to go and make disciples of all nations? It all started with worship. And I'm convinced that's where obedience to the gospel starts for us today as well, is with worship. Because as we surrender, then we are filled fresh to go. But it's when we try to do it in our own authority, our own power, that we fail. So I'm going to ask for you to stand. And in this moment, we're going to sing together as the church a song that celebrates that all authority, every victory belongs to Jesus. And I hope that this will be a moment that if the Spirit of God prompts you about an area of your life where you know Jesus' rule and reign, that He is King, that He has absolute authority, is not on display in your life, that you would surrender it fresh today. That if His Spirit prompts you, that you will surrender it fresh today, and then we will close our service together in just a moment. So let us sing and worship.